Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, we love you so much. And Lord, we thank you that when we see you, we see your love. We see how you care for us, how you have shown us your grace and your mercy and forgiveness. And so, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to be in this place, gathered together as the body of Christ. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to look more like you. So we pray this morning that through worship and through your word, that you would begin the process and continue the process of sanctifying us, of making us more like you, so that we can be the men and women of God that you've called us to be. Again, we thank you, Lord, so much. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to First Southern. Uh, we are continuing in our series on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. So I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read the Bible on. And I want you to, yet again, turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you or an app on your device, uh, we have uh, Bibles available in the pews, uh, so feel free to grab one of those. If you're not quite sure where the book of Luke is, uh, just turn to the table of contents in the front. That's why God gave it to us. And so don't, don't be shy about turning there and finding the book of Luke. Uh, we'll be in chapter 23. Now, normally I begin with some kind of funny story or, or illustration, but I think it's appropriate this morning to look at where we're at in the story of Jesus. I gave you a very brief glimpse last week at what is happening to Jesus and the experience that he's going through, but I thought it appropriate this morning to kind of expound on that a little bit. And so let me give you a recap of where we're at leading up to Luke 23. This is the last week of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross. And so in that last week, Jesus uh, travels to Jerusalem. He enters into Jerusalem, what we call triumphantly. He, he comes in and people are singing and speaking his praises. They're laying palm branches and their coats on the ground as he passes by in honor of his glory. And so he comes in and he speaks the truth. He teaches all week long in the temple and, and speaks God's truth to the people who will hear what he has to say. And then we get to the end of the week and he's gone to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. And so at the end of the week he, he goes uh, and he celebrates this Passover meal with his disciples uh, in what we call the upper room. They, they had found a room that was uh, in an upper part of a building and, and they celebrate the Passover together there. Uh, and during that Passover meal, it is revealed that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And so Judas leaves and goes and makes the arrangements to betray Jesus uh, with the religious leaders. Jesus then, after the Passover meal, uh, he goes and he prays in the garden and spends time uh, letting God know his heart and being quite honest and very frank with the Lord and saying, God, I don't, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. And then he's arrested and illegally tried overnight uh, because it was illegal according to law back in that day and time to hold a secret trial overnight where, uh, where people could not see what was going on. Um, and ultimately, the result of that trial is that he is condemned. 
he is uh, condemned to a death sentence on a cross. And this is where I want to expound for a moment. The difficulty that Jesus went through in those last hours are beyond measure. The experience is something that we really cannot fully grasp. So let me, I don't want to get too graphic with this, but I do want to kind of give you an idea of what Jesus experienced. He was tried and condemned and he was beaten. And we're not talking about he just was taken out and some thugs beat him up. He was strapped over uh, some kind of stone or log or something along those lines with his back exposed and he was beaten with what they called a cat of nine tails. It was a, a whip that had sharp edges on the ends. And it's recorded in history that there were men that died just from this beating process. But Jesus survived. And after he survived that, he was taken and they placed a beam. We, we like to say it's a piece of wood, but it was a beam of wood. It was a large piece of wood and he had to carry that wood over his back. With his open back from the beating, he had to carry that up a hill. And we know from the Gospels that at one point he couldn't carry it any longer. And a man was uh, pulled out of the crowd and was commanded to carry the cross the rest of the way. He's taken up to the top of the hill and spikes are driven into his hands. And then driven into his feet. And then he is lifted up and that cross is dropped in the ground. Think for a moment. If you went through that level of discomfort and pain and agony, can you think that you would make the statements that Jesus makes from the cross? Last week, we studied that Jesus' first statement was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I don't know that I would have the strength mentally, emotionally, let alone physically, to make that kind of a statement. The cross was not an instrument of death that caused you to die from lack of blood or anything like that. The cross was a continual process of suffocation. That's how the cross killed a person. It's considered by many historians to be the most painful, most gruesome form of torturous death that was ever invented. You basically would hang, and because of the way your arms were stretched and your body was pulled up it didn't allow your diaphragm to pull air and exhale air. And so you slowly would suffocate while hanging there. And so you would desperately need a breath, so you would push up with your feet. But because there are so many nerve endings in the ends of your feet, the pain was too excruciating to hold. So you would lift up enough to get the breath, and then you would drop back down. And you would do this for hours on end. Last week, Jesus said in the midst of that, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But then he goes a step further with what we're going to look at today. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 23. I know this is kind of heavy, but I think we sometimes need to put, a, put aside some of the the, for, the, the comfort level of, of the message that I deliver sometimes. And sometimes we just need to get into the dirt, don't we? And I think this passage today calls us to get into the dirt a little bit. 
So Luke 23, we're going to start in verse 39. Verse 39. It says this. And one of the criminals... Now, if you're not aware, Jesus was hung on the cross with two criminals on either side. One on either side, two of them total. They were condemned to death as well. And so one of these criminals, verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a beautiful passage. And I think that we can see from this passage a very small glimpse of a natural progression that we all can go through to have an experience that changes our life with Jesus. And so I want to look at this experience that the, the criminal had with Jesus and see how that applies to our lives. So let's look at the very beginning of this. Look with me in verses 39 through 41. It says, And one of the in- criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. Since you are under the same sentence... We are punished justly for we are getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. I think the first aspect of us experiencing Jesus is that point where we suddenly realize how we have fallen short of the glory of God. In the book of Romans it says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin. And this passage kind of teaches us that. The criminal hanging on the cross suddenly realizes... I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve exactly the punishment that I am receiving in this moment. You see, the criminal was willing to humble himself and confess how he had fallen short of the glory of God. And here's my question for us out of this. This criminal was wise. Are we willing to humble ourselves and confess how we have fallen short of God? When we're in the presence of the perfect and holy Son of God, when the Holy Spirit is moving on our hearts, are we willing to be humble enough to say, God, I have fallen short of you? Are we willing to say, this is where I go short? There's a passage, and we're going to look at this a little bit, so uh, you can mark it down if you'd like to. It's 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9 this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's not a single one of us in this room that's perfect. I mean, I'm close. I've lost some hair, so I'm a little short of being perfect. I'm kidding. But the reality is, is that none of us in this room can clearly or honestly say, I'm perfect. None of us can say, I've achieved perfection. Because we all fall short. 
Paul himself over and over and over says that I want to reach, reach the goal, but I've not gotten there yet. So we've all fallen short. So why, if we are aware, if we know that we're not perfect, why is it so hard to face that imperfection? Why is it so hard for us as people to humble ourselves and realize I'm not as good as I think I am? It's so hard. It's so hard to look in the mirror and see the imperfections. We want to see the good things and we want to see the things that we do right. But we also need to be aware of the ways that we fall short. And so we need to learn to humble ourselves. You see... When you're close to Jesus, you can't help but confess. The Holy Spirit brings that up within us. That's that's one of the works that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts, is being close to Jesus makes us aware and makes us okay with saying, this is what's wrong with me and I need your help with this, Jesus. But here's the thing. Religion without relationship wants to hide those imperfections legalistic religion with no relationship to Jesus wants to keep those imperfections, keep those sins, keep those falling shorts. It wants to hide those and keep those a secret. It likes to pretend that we don't have temptations. It likes to pretend that we're perfect. It likes to pretend that we've got it all together, but we don't. And that's okay because the person next to you doesn't have it all together either. A secret, the people on this stage don't have it all together. Believe me, I know them. I am them. The fact is, is we all need to reject that legalistic religion without relationship and realize that when we keep our sins secret and we don't confess those, that secrecy causes those, che- those sins to go unchecked. And that's the beauty of confession, is that when we're willing to say, I realize I'm not perfect, and here's how I fall short, then suddenly the Holy Spirit can do a great work inside of our hearts and in our lives, because now the Holy Spirit, because of our confession, the door is open for the Holy Spirit to do great works of ridding ourselves of that sin. We can have victory, but not if we don't confess, not if we don't live in humility under God. And so the reality is, is we need to learn from this criminal. You know, you look at him and you go, oh, he's just a stinking criminal. Yeah, but he's better than many of us in this room. Because he was willing to humble himself and say, Jesus, this is what I deserve, but... He was willing to confess. You see, we all struggle. We all have temptations. So our encouragement from God's word is to face them and confess them and have victory over them. But we can only do that if we do those things. We cannot have victory over our sin if we're not willing to humble ourselves and confess the ways that we fall short of God. So, the criminal humbled himself and realized how he had fallen short. And next, we see what happens in verse 42. So look with me in verse 42. The criminal has just confessed, and now he's about to say something very profound. Verse 42. 
Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal requested Jesus. When we realize that we fall short of God, it is natural, the natural reaction through the Holy Spirit should be to request Jesus and his provision. You see, when we realize that we aren't perfect, we realize that the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ's perfection. His perfection is the only door that can get us in there. But think about this for just a minute. Put yourself in the shoes of the criminal. Did the criminal live in a society where the teachings of Jesus and the theology of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of his blood and the forgiveness of sins through him, did the criminal know of any of that? No, because he was experiencing it in live action. There were no books about the blood of Jesus forgiving your sins at this point. There were no Bible series on Netflix about Jesus' death on the cross. None of that had taken place and the criminal is laying it all on the line, not knowing what the response may be. But think about that for a minute. Because we grow up in church or we you know, come to church and we hear sermons and we read our Bible, we understand that we can go to God And say, God, I don't have anything to give you. I need you. Will you forgive me? We know, because we grew up in church, we've been here, we've read the Bible, we know that we can do that. But the criminal didn't know that. He was completely unaware of what Jesus was even doing. I don't know that you could say that the criminal had sat there on the cross, hung there on the cross, and went, you know what, this man must be the sacrificial atonement for all sins of all the world. And so if I go to him right now and I ask him, he'll be the propitiation for my sins and cover me and cleanse me and make me white as snow. Did he have that knowledge? No. But think about what he was saying for a moment. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This criminal was recognizing the godhood of Jesus Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. By confessing Jesus Christ, if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, this criminal was basically condemning himself to hell. But this little experience with Jesus Christ was so compelling. And the Holy Spirit had moved so strongly on this criminal's heart that he was willing to lay it all on the line and say, Jesus I can't do this. I need you. I can't enter your kingdom. I need you to bring me into your kingdom. All too many times, we think that we can get in on our own. We think that we're good enough. We think that we've given enough money to the poor and to church. We think that, oh, well, you know, I sing in a choir that goes to nursing homes and ministers to the elderly. Surely that will get me into heaven. No. And that's probably one of the biggest lies about the Christian faith in the United States today is you can do enough good things to get into heaven, and that's a lie. The truth is is that your good works are like dirty rags because we're so short of God's perfection. And so this criminal goes to God who is hanging on a cross right next to him and he says, Jesus, I can't get into your kingdom. Will you let me in? 
I believe in you. Will you let me in? He makes the request. We have to make a request. We have to give that question to the Lord. God, will you forgive me? God, will you forgive me of my sins? Will you let Jesus' perfection cover me and cleanse me and make me white as snow? Because I'm not deserving of your glory. I'm not deserving of heaven. I deserve punishment because I'm continually in disobedience to your perfect will and, and law. We fall short. And as a result, we need someone who has never fallen short. And this criminal makes the request of the one who has never fallen short. You see... Give you a little secret, and this is a statement you're going to hear from me often. So if you want to write it down, write it down, because you're going to hear this from me on a regular basis. And here's my big idea for this week. This is the idea I want you to go home, and I want you to remember this and let it simmer in your heart and your minds. And that statement is this. Jesus is more concerned with your response to sin than to the sin itself. Does Jesus know that every single one of us in this room are going to sin? Yes. We are humans with a sinful nature. We are going to fall short of God's glory. Continually. We will never reach perfection. And Jesus is fully aware of that. And despite knowing that we are going to let him down time and time again, he's not concerned about when we let him down. He's concerned about what we do when we let him down. What does Jesus say to people over and over and over again when they are confronted with their sin? What does he tell them? He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The fact of the matter is, is we recognize that we have fallen short of God. We request God's forgiveness. And then we respond by doing everything in our power to live as purely as we can under God from that point forward. Now, are we going to fall short? Absolutely. That's who we are. But the fact is, is that if we are doing our best, we are taking every advantage to gain victory over our sin, that's what Jesus glories in. That's what Jesus relishes in, is when we are truly living in the most active repentance that is physically, mentally, and spiritually able within ourselves. Sometimes... That means that we need to actively put roadblocks against our temptations. Sometimes that means that there are certain people that we stop spending as much time with because they lead us into temptation. Sometimes it's saying, you know what, I need to get off my computer because that computer is leading me into temptations that I can avoid if I just leave it alone. There are so many areas that we can respond to Jesus in repentance. Where we can say, if I do this, Lord, it'll help me here. Give me the strength through your Holy Spirit. Jesus is concerned with our response more than the sin itself. You see, we can all have the grace and mercy of Christ. We don't deserve it, and we can't do anything to get it, but the flip side of that coin is we can't do anything so bad that Jesus won't give it to us. And isn't that beautiful? It doesn't matter what sins we've committed. It doesn't matter how bad we think our lives have been. If we can go to God humbly with repentance, 
recognizing that we need to confess and live a life for Jesus, he will forgive us. And where do I get that? The next verse of 1 John chapter 1. We looked at verse 8. What does verse 9 say? John chapter 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? It doesn't say if we go to the Lord and we confess our sins that he will usually be faithful. He will almost always be faithful. It says he will be faithful. And we can have great, great, great honor and praise in that. Knowing that no matter what we do, if we're truly following Jesus Christ and we're truly living a life of the repentance that he's called us to live, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins because of the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus calls us to respond by depending on him. Your response to the awareness of your sin is to depend on him for that forgiveness, for the power to repent. That all leans on him. Remember, go back to that statement that I gave you. Jesus is more concerned with your response to sin than to the sin itself. Your response is so vital. So the criminal has recognized how he's fallen short and he has made a request to Jesus. And let's look at how this ends. Verse 43. Verse 43 says, Jesus answered him. Remember, the criminal has requested, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And this is Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that beautiful? Today, not tomorrow, not after you've gone and done a background check and I've made sure that everything's okay with you. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It's a beautiful statement. Paradise is given out of the request. Jesus gave him a grace and mercy that he did not deserve, that none of us deserve. But he didn't put any qualifiers on it. And I love this about this passage. Did Jesus on the cross, after hearing this question, this request from the criminal, did Jesus go, okay, I'll let you into paradise, but you need to go and get baptized first. No. Did Jesus go, well, you need to go through this class. And after you've completed the class and one of my disciples has checked off that you're good to go, then I'll let you into paradise. Here's the hardest one for us as good Baptists. Did Jesus go, okay, I'll let you in, but you need to pray this prayer with me. Bow your head. No. There's no formula that works for every single person. Each of our experiences with Jesus are unique. But if we've had that true life-changing experience with Jesus Christ, we can have the hope of salvation in our lives. You see, the Bible makes it clear that all we have to do to be saved is first, 
We have to truly and wholly believe in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it means that we believe Jesus, born of a virgin, the Son of God himself, lived a life of perfect sinlessness on this earth. He had a ministry and he taught about Jesus, he taught about God and his kingdom. And at the end of his life, he was falsely accused. And he was accused and condemned to a death on a cross. And as he hung on that cross, he bore the weight of all the sins of the world. And through his blood, those sins were wiped away and cleansed. And we can have that forgiveness. We can have our sins and our shortcomings wiped away and cleansed if we believe and dedicate our lives to Jesus Christ. That is what the criminal did. Did he have anything to offer Jesus in that moment? Did he have a lifetime ahead of him that he could say, Jesus, if you'll let me into your paradise, I'll live the rest of my life for you. Oh, great. The next two hours? Good job, criminal. The criminal literally had nothing to offer. He could not minister. He could not go out and evangelize. He couldn't join the disciples in doing the work of God. He was dying. But because of his belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that is what brought him to salvation. That's what gave him the forgiveness that he needed to inherit eternal life with God the Father. So to to be saved, we have to believe. But that belief changes us. And the Bible also says two other things that are necessary. It says that we live in repentance... And it says that we confess Jesus. In other words, we don't be quiet about our faith. Our faith isn't secret. Our faith becomes a public, life-changing element in this world. The criminal didn't have that life-changing lifetime to give to Jesus. But Jesus didn't care. Jesus just wanted him to believe and confess and repent. And that's what he's calling each and every one of us to do. Some of you in this room may have never stepped into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Maybe you don't know, or maybe you've never confessed, and you've never sought repentance and what that looks like. And today, if you're that person, I want to talk to you. I would love the opportunity to explain what that is and answer questions that you might have about what a life-changing relationship with Jesus looks like. But it boils down first step to belief. And this criminal exemplifies that perfectly. You can have paradise. And it hinges on your belief in Jesus Christ and what that belief does in your life. So here's my closing question. How do you respond to your sin? Where? Sorry. That was my fault. Sorry. How do you respond to your sin today? And where is your belief? Who is your belief placed in? Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, thank you so much. As heavy of a message as this was, this message is a message of hope. Hope that we can have eternal life in paradise with you. Lord, I pray 
that today you would help us to understand that we're not perfect, we all fall short, and we need to live in the confession of our sins that you call us to. Help us to be humble. Help us to have the attitude that we need to have to live our lives for you. Help us to be in true belief, to understand who you are and what you've done for for all of us. And help us to live in forgiveness and repentance. God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you for who he is and what he's done. And we lift you up for that and we praise you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move now into a time of response. And if you need to talk with someone this morning, um, I'm going to be up here on the front row. I'd love the opportunity to to speak with you this morning. If you need to pray, our our altar is open to you. We invite you to come and and kneel and pray. Um, But if you don't have time or or you're not comfortable coming and talking, uh, grab Keith or I after the service. We would love the opportunity to talk to you more about what a life-changing relationship with Jesus looks like. So let's stand and let's truly respond in worship.